Bible this morning, church. Turn to John chapter 2. We're continuing in in our study through the Gospel of John. And so we've got some notes that'll be up there on the screen for you. I'm going to come up here. And the land of the giants. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, Jason, how tall are you? 6'3". I'm 6'3". Mike is 6'8". And Rob's a pretty good, decent size, too. Like, this is the land of the giants up here, I was thinking. And so, uh, so I'm going to put this down so you guys can see the screen uh, this morning. All right, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 2. So far, as we've been studying through the Gospel of John, we've been seeing pictures of Jesus Christ and who he is. We've been seeing that, um, that John, that really, he gives... The Gospel of John is sometimes called the Book of Signs. There are seven signs, seven big signs that, excuse me, that John gives to us as his reader. And we're going to see the first of those seven signs this morning here in the Gospel of John. John the writer, the purpose of this Gospel is trying to convince his readers. In John 20, verse 31, write that down. We looked at that a few weeks ago when we started this series John 20, verse 31, he wrote, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. The entire purpose of this gospel is to convince us as his readers to believe. We've talked about this a few times that it could be easy to think, well, this is for just unbelievers. And that's true. This book was written to unbelievers, but this book was also written to us as believers. Because the reality is this. There are going to come times in your life and my life where we're going to doubt. We're really going to wonder, was Jesus real? Is all any of this real? Does God exist? Well, John wrote this for those of us who may unbelieve not believe any of this, to convince us that this is true. But he also wrote this for the believer that is doubting. And there will be times in each of our lives when we doubt. And so that's why John wrote this this gospel. So far, John has shown us some neat things about Jesus. He's shown us some pictures about Jesus. He described Jesus in John 1 as what? John 1, 1 as the what? Word. We talked about that, that John is the, uh, that Jesus is the word, that Jesus is the, is God, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, that God came in the flesh as Jesus, that Jesus was equally man and equally God. How does that work? I don't know. I wish I, there was a really terrific way to explain it, but all of those Ill- illustrations, bottom line, they fall short. Jesus was equally man, equally God. Jesus was, so he was God, he was deity, he was also the eternal creator Now, as we look at to the first miracle of Jesus, it's really important for us to file in the back of our minds. He's the eternal creator. We've also seen John the Baptist. The last couple weeks, we've spent a little bit of time with John the Baptist, kind of a unique guy. And John the Baptist gave Jesus a pretty unique title. What was that title? He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we talked about John the Baptist, how he gave that title. And then we saw last week that when John's followers, John the Baptist's followers, his disciples, heard that, a couple of them went and followed Jesus. And Jesus asked them, we saw this last week, Jesus asked them, what are you looking for? He was getting right to the motive of these disciples. Why are you following me? What are you looking for? We talked about how we need to ask ourselves the question, why do we follow Jesus? 
So Jesus asked them that question. And then Andrew realized who Jesus was. And what did Andrew do? Anyone remember from last week? You probably don't remember because my voice was so terrible. Andrew went and got Peter, Simon. He brought Peter to Jesus. We saw Jesus gave Peter a new name. It was Simon and then the Peter. And how we talked about how Jesus, when we're exposed to Jesus, Jesus changes our identity. He changes who we are. Then, then uh, uh, Philip went and got Nathaniel and brought Nathaniel, and he told Nathaniel, We found the one that the prophets talked about, Jesus of Nazareth. And what was Nathaniel's response? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Right? We talked about that. Nazareth wasn't the most pleasant place on the planet. And he said, can anything good come from Nazareth? And he came and exposed, them, exposed Nathaniel to Jesus. And Nathaniel came to know who Jesus was. Well, now we're here in John chapter 2. And we're going to see the first sign. John, again, it's called the book of signs. We're going to see the first sign that Jesus is the Messiah. So look at John chapter 2 and verse 1. Let's read this. It says this. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Now, let's just stop for just a second. Jesus is not being disrespectful here, okay? All right, in our culture, if I, I spent some time with my mom yesterday, if I called her woman, she would have slapped me yesterday, okay? That's not, Jesus is not being disrespectful. Woman, in the Jewish uh, term and language here, this is a term of endearment. You could almost think of it as mother, okay? So he's being endearing to his mother. So when we read this, Jesus is not being disrespectful here, okay? So don't go home and say woman to your mom, okay? That, that will not end well for you. All right, let's keep going. Verse 5. <coughs> Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them, so they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the, tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Gal Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. So here we see the first miracle of Jesus. Jesus and his disciples were invited to a wedding in the city of Cana, Cana was in a province of Israel, Galilee, and his mother was there. Now, in our culture today, when we have, an, when we have a wedding, thankfully, it lasts only an afternoon or an evening. But in the Jewish culture, it could sometimes last a week. Could you imagine that? A wedding, a party that lasted a week. Now, we have a few couples in our church that are getting ready to get married. Kyler and Renee are going to get married in December. Uh, Charlie and Jackie are going to get married in February. And I've been talking with uh, these couples and pray for them. They're a little bit stressed out. Weddings can be stressful. 
Thankfully, Kyler's not. Kyler's like, I just roll with this. This is no big deal, right? <laughs> Weddings can be very, very stressful. They're joyous occasions, but they can also be stressful. I'm so glad in our American culture that weddings don't last a week. I mean, could you imagine the cost of the wedding for a week? But these Jewish people, they would celebrate for a week of this wedding. I mean, they partied. They had a great time. They really enjoyed themselves. So on the third day of this celebration, a problem happens. As oftentimes in weddings, a wedding, uh, something's going to happen. All right? Something's going to happen. A problem pops up. And what was the problem? They ran out of wine. They ran out of wine. And that's a big problem in this culture because this is a huge embarrassment. In this culture... The groom's family provided the party after the wedding. Now, the brides today provide the party, usually the bride's family. Here in this culture, the groom's family provided the after party for a week. And to run out of supplies for that week, especially a wine, that, especially wine, that would have been shameful. In fact, we can see some historical evidence that when a groom would run out of wine, his in-laws would file a lawsuit and sue him over it. Okay, so not a great way to a great first start with the in-laws, okay, a lawsuit, uh, and, and it's just a huge cultural shame. It was, it was, it was a close-knit society, it was been, would have been shameful, and wine actually, too, at a wedding in this Jewish culture, it was a symbol. The wine was a symbol of joy, and to run out of it, people might interpret that that either the bride or the groom, they're not happy about this uh, wedding. Okay, so you had to make sure you had plenty of wine on hand because if you ran out, it would have been a social disgrace. And this Jewish culture it was really close-knit, kind of like an Italian family. They were really close-knit and it would, have been, it would have been a social disgrace and it would have never been forgotten. You would have been known as the family that ran out of wine at the wedding. Now, here at this wedding here in Canaan, I'm sure rumors begin to swirl, okay? You can imagine the wine's getting lower. People are starting to wonder, where's the wine? We want more wine. And rumors and gossip, I'm sure, just begin to swirl. What is going on? So Mary, Jesus' mother, she catches wind of it. And she comes to Jesus and tells him about the situation. Now, when we read this, we need to ask ourselves a question. Whenever we read the Bible, we have to be constantly asking ourselves questions. We need to ask ourselves the question, why would Mary go back to Jesus? Why would she go back? I mean, it could be that Jesus owed her one, right? Maybe Jesus owed her one, uh, maybe he had misbehaved, and mom's trying to hold something over his head and tell him, you need to make this happen. Maybe it could have been that Jesus was a wine connoisseur, and he knew wine, and maybe he owned a vineyard that we don't know about, and he could make the wine happen. Maybe that was it. No, that wasn't it. We don't know 100% sure why Mary went to Jesus, but I, we have to remember, you remember back when Jesus was born, or even before that, when the angel came to Mary and said, you're going to have a baby you're not even going to have a relation, relations with a man. You're going to have a baby conceived by the Holy Spirit. And you remember after Jesus was born, born there in a cave in Bethlehem, 
the shepherds came and they did what? They worshipped him. And then a little while later, the wise men came and they worshipped Jesus. And what does it say in Luke chapter 2 that Mary did? She pondered those things in her heart. She thought about those things. She meditated on those things. She knew who Jesus was. So she goes to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. Now, Jesus' response here is kind of interesting. He basically says, Mom, what does this have to do with me? What does it have to do with me? And in fact, that was correct. Jesus wasn't the wedding planner. Jesus wasn't the one. It was, was not his responsibility. So his response is, what does this have to do with me? That question, that was a correct answer. But Mary's not talking about, she's talking about something deeper here. Because what did Jesus say? Jesus said in verse 4, my hour has not yet come. So Mary and Jesus, they obviously had a very close relationship. We don't know this. This is just me reading between the lines. I'm sure they had conversations. I'm sure Mary, because of the Jewish culture, told Jesus the story of the shepherds coming to worship him and the wise men and all those things. I'm sure Mary and Jesus had lots of conversations about what, were, what was happening. And Jesus said, Mom, my hour has not yet come. And when Jesus says that, what does he mean by that? We're going to see this throughout the Gospel of John, that when Jesus speaks of his hour, he's referring to his death. He's referring to his death. So right here is John's writing here. John's a brilliant writer. He's a really, really brilliant writer. And what's he doing here? He's doing a little bit of foreshadowing. He's showing that this is going to happen here in the future. He's showing a little clip of the script of what's going to end up happening. And Jesus says, it's it's not my hour. John's using this as we read this. The Bible is a terrific literary, it's brilliant. And John the writer is drawing us, the reader, in. And he's giving some foreshadowing to the death of Jesus Christ. But also, all of Jesus' miracles are a building to his glorification of his death and his resurrection. So it's as if Jesus is telling Mary, Mom, it's not time for my glorification yet. It's not time for me to die and be resurrection. In resurrection. But I love Mary's response. She's just a typical mother, isn't she? She's a little bit passive-aggressive, isn't she? Because what does she do? She tells the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. So she almost kind of just brushes what Jesus off. She's a little passive-aggressive, and she tells, tells the servants, do what he tells you to do. So what happens? They take six stone jars. Now, don't think little pots of flowers that you might have at home. These are huge, massive jars. They could hold between 20 and 30 gallons. These are huge. These are big they were big, and they so. He, and what does Jesus tell these guys to do? Fill them with water. All right, they fill them with water, and then Jesus tells them to take it to the master. Some translations of the Bible say the master of the feast. Anyone have that in your translation? The master of the feast. I'm reading from the Christian Standard. It says the head waiter, <coughs> or like the head caterer. So Jesus brings the head caterer in, and he tastes it. He didn't know where this wine came from. This guy's job was to oversee everything. And that was a huge job. Remember, they partied for a week at at, at a wedding like this. 
So he had a big job. He would have known every detail of that feast, of that meal. And they bring, uh, they bring the groom in, and the head waiter, the, the head caterer, he tells them, most people serve the fine wine, the good stuff, first. They get everyone drunk, and they bring down the watered-down stuff. And that would happen. They would use, do that to save costs. Right? Makes sense, right? Get everyone drunk, water the wine down, and, uh, and then when they're drunk, they won't know the difference. But this head caterer tells the groom, this is different. You're serving the fine wine afterwards. Now, Jesus, what's he done here? He's created really good wine. Really good stuff here. And they hand out the wine to everyone else. And look again at verse 11. What was the point of Jesus turning the water into wine? Verse 11. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Canaan of Galilee. <coughs> he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. These signs were to show his glory, and his disciples believed. Now, it's interesting here, this word signs, John decides to use the word sign to describe this miracle. He uses the word signs to describe the miracles of Jesus throughout this gospel. Like I've said, this is the book of signs, seven signs throughout the gospel. Now, we've seen the first miracle of Jesus. Now, you could be here this morning, and you could be really struggling with Christianity. You could approach this miracle of Jesus, or any miracle of Jesus, or any of the miracles in the Bible, and say, this is against nature. This does not happen. I mean, how could he scientifically... Turn water into wine. That's against the law of nature. But we have to remember something about what we discovered about Jesus a few weeks ago in John chapter 1. Jesus is the eternal creator. John 1 verse 3, it said, all things were created by him. So if we can believe that all things were created by Jesus, it should not be that difficult for us to believe that Jesus turned water into wine. So it's not really about the miracle. Do you believe in miracles? That's not the question. The question is, what do you believe about Jesus? What are you going to do with him? Some people say, well, I can't believe Jonah in the Old Testament. That Jonah could be swallowed by a whale, live for three days inside of a whale, and survive. And that's a difficult thing to wonder about. That's a miracle. That's a big thing that happened that God did. But if you're asking that question, if you're honest, you're not asking the question about Jonah. The question is, what are you going to do about God? Because if you can believe that God created this entire universe, that he came in the flesh as Jesus Christ, he died for the sins of the world and resurrected, thinking a man could survive inside of a fish for three days is not that much of a stretch. So the Bible is full of the miraculous. And Jesus did these miracles to prove who he was. And it says here that his disciples believed in him. And we're going to get back to that in a second. But we have to ask a question. Why did Jesus do miracles? We're going to see a lot of miracles coming up. In a few weeks, we'll talk about feeding the 5,000. Like, why did Jesus do these miracles? So as we go and journey through the rest of this gospel, we have to ask the question, why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus do this? I mean, was Jesus performing a magic trick here? Was he trying to impress people? What's Jesus doing here? Was it, did he just do it because he was nice? 
Jesus always was very calculated in what he did. He had very specific reasons for what he was doing. So what were they? Why did Jesus do miracles? Well, number one, to display his power as God. I mean, only God could do something like this. To display his power of God. Again, it goes back to John 1 verse 3. All things were created by him. Jesus is proving this. Now, when we started in John chapter 1 a few weeks ago, remember, John the writer, he's giving us an overall big picture, kind of a Google Earth view of what he was going to write about. Now we're getting into the specifics. So all things were created by him, John 1 verse 3. And so Jesus was proving this to display his power as God. To turn water into wine was something, something only a deity could do. Only a deity could do this. And he's, Jesus is proving, I am God in the flesh. And look again at verse 11, 11. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Canada, Galilee. He revealed his glory. If you're a highlighter or you like to underline things in your Bible, underline that phrase. He revealed his glory. So if Jesus is revealing his glory... What does that mean? What is Jesus showing here? He's, it's not about what he was doing. It's more about who he was. He's revealing something about himself. What's he revealing? I'm God. I'm God. All right, number two. Why did Jesus do miracles? To show his redemptive purpose. To show his redemptive purpose. It's easy for us modern people to think of miracles as an interruption of the natural order. But Jesus meant miracles not as an interruption of the natural order, but as a restoration of it. You say, Adam, what do you mean? Well, when, in Genesis 1, when God created the world, what did God say about the world? Remember, Jesus is the eternal creator. Jesus is a member of the Trinity, so he was involved in creation. When God created the world, what did God say? It was good. In fact, Genesis 1, verse 27, God said, God looked over all that he made and he said that it was very good. It was perfect. So when God originally created the world, he did not create the world to have disease like cancer or suffering and death in it. But because of sin, those things entered into the world. When Adam and Eve, our great, 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 great grandparents, sinned, then disease, suffering, evil, death entered into the world, entered into creation. So now Jesus has arrived on the scene, God in the flesh, and now he's going to begin redeeming what is wrong and broken in the world. Even if it was something that could appear as trivial as providing more wine for a feast, Jesus was redeeming things back to God. It was to show his redemptive purpose. His miracles are not just proof that he has power, has the power of God, but that he's going to fix a broken and decaying world. The miracles of Jesus don't just point to his redemptive purpose in nature, but in our own lives. Because the reality is, each one of us here, we are broken. We might argue on the varying degrees of that brokenness, but we are all broken. We all experience brokenness in our lives. We are sinful, but the beauty of God coming in the flesh in Jesus Christ, Jesus came to fix that. 
He came to perform even a greater miracle than turning water into wine. But to restore and redeem our souls. To redeem us. The brokenness that we have in our lives. The miracles of Jesus are just a picture of what happens in the life of a believer. Jesus' miracles are a picture of God's redemptive purpose in each of our lives. So as we continue and journey through this book, when we see Jesus healing a blind person or a sick person, Jesus is healing us who are spiritually blind, spiritually sick. Jesus heals us. So one reason why Jesus would do miracles is to show his redemptive purpose. And number three, to move people to believe in him. Look again at verse 11. It says, he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So after Jesus reveals who he is, the disciples witnessed this miracle and his disciples believed in him. But let's, push, let's stop for just a second. Let's think this through for a moment. These disciples had already believed in him, right? Why? They followed him. All right, so let's be logical here. Let's use our brains. These disciples had already believed in him, and they had followed him. So why are they believing again? Now, we can misinterpret that. Hear me right. We can misinterpret that. That sees that, that we have to keep on getting saved over and over and over and over again. And we have to keep asking Jesus in our heart. There's some that would teach that. That's an incorrect teaching. What has happened here in the life of these disciples that are seeing this happen, it's a confirmation of their belief. Their belief in Jesus is now just going even deeper in who he is. Again, what was the point of the Gospel of John? To John 20, 31, to believe in Jesus, to believe in his name for eternal life, both the unbeliever and the believer. John is trying to strengthen faith in believers and, uh, and to lead unbelievers to faith. So when we read this miracle here, the disciples, their belief in Jesus is being strengthened. It's being pulled together even stronger. So as we read these beliefs and uh, these miracles of Jesus, it ought to lead us as believers to believe in Jesus all the more. It's a confirmation to our own souls that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. And then for the unbeliever to believe in him for salvation. So let's, what's the application here? Why did Jesus do miracles? You might sit here and think, Adam, this is all really good information. What's the application to my life? What does this have to do with me on a day-to-day basis? Well, number one, witness all that Christ has done and allow his work to strengthen our belief. Just like the disciples, as we get exposed more and more to who Jesus Christ is, our faith, if you are a believer this morning, your faith ought to be strengthened in him. Read these, these, these miracles, these signs. Let it confirm in your heart who Jesus is. Because like I said at the beginning, the reality is there are going to be times in our lives when our faith is going to be shaken. And we need to remember who Jesus is, the object of our faith. Then number two, embrace the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Every one of us here today, we need transformation. And whether you're an unbeliever here who is considering faith in Jesus or as a believer is facing challenges and difficulties in our lives that can cause 
doubt. We all need to Jesus to come and bring change in ways that no one else can. Just as Jesus transformed that water into wine, Jesus transforms our lives. And he makes us new. So we must embrace the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Jesus can take the ordinary and make it extraordinary. That's what Jesus constantly is doing. And then number three, and finally this morning, behold the glory of Jesus Christ and believe. Behold the glory of Jesus Christ and believe. Just as the disciples allowed the work of Jesus and him revealing who he was to shape their understanding of the nature of Christ, as we witness through Scripture, the miracles of Jesus and are exposed to His glory through the work of the Holy Spirit, our understanding of, of who Jesus is and what He provides, it must be molded into our understanding of who He is. And as our understanding of Jesus and who He is is molded, then our faith will be strengthened and our lives will be changed. Behold the glory of Christ and believe in him. Pray with me. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it transforms our lives. And we thank you for what you've done to make our lives new. And I pray, God, that if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, that you would show them through your signs and your miracles that you are the Christ. And then for those of us who are believers, strengthen our faith. Help us to understand that you've done the miraculous in our lives, and that's just a confirmation of our belief. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask Roxanne to play.